0: Well, we are continuing on in our study of the person of God. This morning, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of the Trinity. Bow your heads with me in prayer, and we'll we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for uh, these people. Lord, we thank you for your truth. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that even in this cold, tough weather, Lord, that so many people came out. Lord, to submit themselves to your truth. Lord, be with us, guide us, give us clarity of thought, Lord, as we wrestle through uh, the difficult doctrine of the Trinity. Lord, we love you, we thank you, in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Let me give us some background on the Trinity. As we move through, I'm going to define the Trinity in a way that I, I hope will be helpful, and then we're going to, this morning, kind of survey the biblical data for support for the Trinity, or to see if there is support for the Trinity. So the first question is, the last few months we've been looking at the attributes of God. Well, how does the Trinity relate to the attributes of God? Is the Trinity an attribute of God? It's, it's not an attribute of God. So then how does the Trinity relate? I asked a, a coworker of mine uh, in the last few weeks, just coming to my office, and he asked me if I'd be uh, doing any more teachings. I said, yeah, we're going to be talking on the Trinity in a few weeks. And I said, well, let me me ask you a question. He's not a believer, but he he grew up in the church. I said, what do you think of when you think of the Trinity? What comes to your mind when you think of God and the Trinity? He said, honestly, I I don't ever think about the Trinity at all. He said, when I think about God, I think about the Father. I mean, everybody knows the Father's God, right? And I said, well, what do you do with the Son and the Spirit? He goes, honestly, I, I don't think about them at all. God is the Father, and everyone knows that. And it just hit me, I think that's the way so many of us view God. God is the Father, and then, yeah, we know the Son and the Spirit are God, but I don't know, something's just different about them. The Father is God, right? Well, understanding the reality of the Trinity allows us to think rightly about the attributes of God. The biblical teaching on the Trinity shows us that all of the attributes of God are true of all three persons of the Trinity, and so attributes like God's omnipotence and his omniscience, his independence, this isn't something that's just true of the Father, but is also true of the Son and of the Spirit. All of them equally belong to all three members of the Trinity. Now why this is important is because understanding the Trinity is vital to so many key aspects of our, our faith. And a question that we could think about is the Trinity just a, a topic for uh, theologians to think about, maybe theologians to ponder? Yeah, we, we get that, but we don't need to really spend a whole lot of time thinking about the Trinity. Or do we see this as a vital topic that's foundational to what we believe as believers? Grudem gives us this, this helpful comment. He says, the doctrine of the Trinity is one of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith. To study the Bible's teachings on the Trinity gives us great insight into the question that is the center of all of our seeking after God. What is God like in himself? So the Trinity answers the question who is God in his being? What is God's nature like? And we'll see a little bit today, and I'll look at this a little bit more next week, that some of the attributes of God actually find themselves grounded in the Trinity itself. That if God were not a triune being, some of the attributes of God that we're aware of could not possibly exist. What then is the Trinity? On your handout, we've got a definition here that there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God. We'll read that one more time. There is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God. Another helpful way to describe this might be to say that God is one being and three persons. Or, I just heard this recently, God is one what, and three, who's? The reason why I like that is because a critique of the Trinity is that, what, it's illogical. It doesn't make sense. One plus one plus one equals one. That's, that's typically what I've heard. But we believe that there are three persons called God, but only one God. When we frame it this way, that God is one being, yet three persons, it bypasses those logical attacks. Some will also immediately object but the word Trinity is not even in the Bible. How are you going to believe a doctrine that's not, that's not even biblical? We can say a few things about this. Many of the doctrines we believe by name are not in the Bible. The incarnation by name is not in the Bible. Original sin is not in the Bible. Is that a problem? Not at all. These are simply words that describe things that the Bible teaches and summarizes on. So it is the same way with the Trinity. So this gets us to our... Main content today. What are these teachings outlined in the Scripture? What are these teachings in the Trinity found in the Scripture? Well, we've got three. Number one, different persons are called God in the Bible. Different, distinct persons are called God in the Bible. Number two, each person is fully, and I would even add, equally and necessarily God. Each person is fully and equally. God, and number three, there is one God. Do those three make sense? Yep, so different persons are called God, each person is fully God, and there is one God. Let's, let's just work through uh, each of these. Different persons are referred to as God. Now, I was surprised to hear this for the first time, but it's interesting that the doctrine of the Trinity isn't, doesn't actually start in the New Testament, But the seedbed of the Trinity is actually found in the Old Testament. And so we're going to go back to the very beginning, just do a high-level survey of some Old Testament passages that give us a really good foundation for God being multiple persons. Right out of the gate in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 126, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Well, who, who is God referring to here? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. There have been a whole host of uh, suggestions for people to say, no, that's absolutely not referring to God being multiple persons. Uh, that, that's the sort of royal, majestic we. Like we, we summon you to the court of the king. I'll, even, I'll give my friend a call and say, hey man, what are we getting into? And I'm not, I'm not talking about me and him, I'm just asking him, what are we getting into? Is that what's going on here? Is this a royal or majestic we? The problem is is that the royal or majestic we didn't come into uh, practice until almost 2,000 years after the book of Genesis. So it, it can't be this royal we. Another suggestion is that God is referring to the angels, When he says, let us make man in our own image, he's looking at the host of angels next to him and saying that to them. Are we convinced by this suggestion? I'm not either. What's the problem with that? Are we made in the image of the angels? Whose image are we made in? We're made in the image of God alone. And in fact, Paul tells us that one day we will sit over the angels and actually judge them. So it's only in God's image that we're made. And so when God says, let us make man in our image, there's only one option that's left for me, that there is a plurality of persons within the Godhead. We see this in Genesis 3.22. uh, Continuing, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. The same thing here. Look then at at Isaiah 6, verse 8. We see a little bit uh, different insight into the plurality of persons. Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? So you have one passage where both the uh, singular first person pronoun is used and the plural first person pronoun is used. You with me? Peter said, I need to make sure I use as many grammatical terms as possible when he's gone. So in the same verse, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Showing the plurality of persons that God is both one, yet he is plural. We'll look at one more. This is even more explicit uh, evidence for God being multiple persons in Psalm 45, 6-7. The psalmist writes, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So here the psalmist is referring to the Davidic king, the human Davidic king. But then he uses language that goes far beyond what anyone could say, of a human. He calls the king God and says that the king is going to have an eternal, forever throne. And then oddly, still speaking to this person called God, he says that God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness. So we have two persons in one verse, both called Elohim, both referred to as God. And then through the progress of Revelation in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews actually tells us that this first God, this eternal king, is actually Christ himself that would reign as the Davidic king forever. Many, many other passages uh, like this. Now, while the Old Testament does provide a, a good kind of seedbed and a, and a good foundation for the doctrine of the Trinity, we really see it expand explicitly in the New Testament, and so we're going to turn our attention to the witness of the New Testament. And, and right out the gate, you see all three names put together in verse after verse. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what what the implications are of that. Look at this uh, uh, very familiar verse, Matthew twenty eight sixteen. This is Jesus after he is uh, resurrected, and he's sending off his disciples. He said, and it says, "And Jesus came and said to them." All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, have you ever thought about this? Why would anyone else's name be placed along God's name when it comes to the conversion of unbelievers, when it comes to the baptizing of new converts to Christ? When it comes to making disciples, why in the world would it not just be God? I mean, could you imagine how odd it was if, if it, the verse said, baptizing them in the name of God and Abraham and Solomon? We would say that, that just that seems strange. Or Aaron and Moses. But it says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Something else, and many of you may know this, I think it's worth pointing out, is that it doesn't say baptizing them in the names of plural of the father son and spirit but rather the one the name of the one god is father son and spirit let's look down then at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 uh, verse 4 paul under the inspiration of the holy spirit you have to imagine uh, for these people that are that are jewish monotheists that believe in one god the as god's revelation increased to them to show them that more than one person is called God. Can you imagine what that must have been like in the mind of a Jew as he's wrestling with this? I know that this is true, but this is the way that we were used to. We, we used to believe in just this God as one being and one person. So you see that Paul uses different words to refer to each member of the Godhead to show that while they are one, there is also distinction in person between them. Paul tells us, now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it's the same God. You see this over and over and over again, where it's Father, Son, and Spirit all throughout the New Testament. Next week, we're going to look a little bit about, uh, into the various roles that each member of the Trinity play in things like our redemption in creation uh, as it relates to our, our worship and our prayer. But Paul here is making the distinction between them. Now, at this point, I think I need to issue a, a warning to us, okay? As we start to develop a, an understanding of the Trinity, and we, we want to explain it to other people, we'll often use analogies to help us explain the Trinity. How many of us have used an analogy? Maybe Maybe that the Holy Spirit is like, H2O, he's water, he's ice, or he's steam. Have y'all heard that analogy before? It's okay. So what, what's, the, what's the problem with using analogies? The problem is, is that there really is no analogy between water, ice, and steam and God. God is always Father, Son, and Spirit. Equally and at all times, he never stops being Father, Son, and Spirit. But no single molecule of water is at the same time ice and water and steam. It's ice at one point, and then it's water at one point, and then it's steam at one point. So rather than than actually being a helpful analogy for the Trinity, it ends up being a helpful analogy for the false doctrine known as modalism, which was condemned in the early church. Modalism taught that one God manifested himself in various modes throughout history. So, in the Old Testament, God manifested himself as the Father. In the New Testament, God manifested himself as the Son. And the Church Age, he manifested himself as the Spirit, like someone just wearing different masks. And he would take this mask off and then place the other mask on. Well, what's the problem with this? This denies our first point that different distinct persons are called god not just one person with different names and if you if you look at all the other analogies all of them run into the same issue the largest problem with this is that scripture just flat out rejects that there is only one god that manifests in different ways a great example of this is at the baptism of jesus and i have this in your notes matthew chapter 3 Verse 16 and 17, it says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So at the same time, you see all three members of the Trinity present. The Father bestowing his blessing onto the Son, and then the Spirit descending like a dove. So this would reject the doctrine of modalism. What is the the biggest problem with analogies? Analogies try to tell us that something is like something else. But what is the triune God like? He's not like anything. In creation, which is why scripture doesn't give us any analogy to understand the Trinity. Okay, so we've seen some good examples, uh, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and there's obviously a ton more. One of the challenges of putting this together is where do you start and and where do you pick from out of the, the, the overwhelming amount of evidence showing that God is more than one person. So this takes us to our, our next uh, component of the Trinity, that each person is fully God. Now, I want to tell you a story uh, about someone that's probably uh, the best evangelist that I've ever met. Okay? It is my wife, Katie. She's with us back there. Let, let me give you a, a contrast to show the way I evangelize so that I can highlight the way that she evangelizes. So this is the way I evangelize. I will study for months on a topic that no one cares about and, and pray that God will send someone into my office. It could be on a Tuesday. That would be fine. Tuesday afternoon. Someone say, Matt, you know, I've been thinking about this. Could you give me a rundown of all the Christological heresies in the, in the first 200 years of church history? And I would be ready to go. That, to my surprise, honestly, has never happened. But the way that my wife evangelizes is she asks questions. Okay, She asks very uh, subtle questions, but it draws people in. So one of the questions she could ask people is where do you go to church? She asks people this all the time. We were invited to a, a Pelican suite a few weeks ago. We didn't know anyone there. Within a few minutes, she's talking to a group of the ladies asking them where they go to church. I mean, it would probably take me five years before I would ask somebody where they go to church. And, and it was great. The girl tells her that well, actually we we moved here from Kentucky. My dad was a pastor. He just recently passed away. And so she got to a really deep level conversation with this girl that she just met. She had a, a Muslim customer and she asked these sort of like naive questions like, Oh, what do what do Muslims believe? I'm not I'm not really sure. And then it gets them talking and they then ask her questions about her faith. The best question that my wife asked people. And this is typically uh, asked of people who are a little uh, distant or skeptical of Christianity. She said, what do you do with Jesus? What, what do you make of Jesus? We've got to do something with him. We can't simply dismiss him. Now, why is this such a good question? Is this not the, the central question of the New Testament? Who is the person of Jesus? The issue was not what Jesus taught. Much of what he taught was already taught by prophets in the Old Testament. The the issue wasn't necessarily what he did. The issue was who Jesus is. He asked Peter, Peter, who do you say that I am? Right? And isn't that the question that each of us have to give an answer for? Who do we say that Jesus is? One of my favorite stories in the Gospels is in Mark 14. Jesus is before the Jewish high priest Caiaphas. And Caiaphas asked Jesus the same question regarding his identity Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? How does Jesus respond? He says, I am. Now, let me make a few comments on this. Simply asking Jesus, Are you the Christ? in and of itself is not problematic. The Christ was simply the Messiah. The, a human being that would come out of the line of David. That, that wasn't, they may disagree with, with Jesus being the Christ, but this wasn't a, a damnable offense. The second question, are you the son of the blessed? Now, what Caiaphas was not asking Jesus, he was not saying, are you the progeny or the offspring of the blessed one? He's asking Jesus, are you of the order of the blessed one? Are you putting yourself on equal footing with the blessed one? Jesus responds, I am, and then he calls himself the son of man. If you recall in Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament, the son of man is the one who ascends on the clouds and reigns eternally with the ancient of days. The son of man is the divine king that would come. How does Caiaphas respond to Jesus' answer? He tore his clothes. He looked at his counsel said, what further witness do you need? Blasphemy. The issue all along was over the identity of Jesus, and he was sentenced to death. Jesus tells the Pharisees in John chapter 8, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. The number one issue is who is Jesus? And this question was the center of controversy for the first 200 plus years of church history after the closing of the New Testament, and, it, and it's still a center of controversy today. You have multiple cults, Mormons and Jehovah's Witness, that present a Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Scripture. So, who is the Jesus of the Scripture? In our, our last 15 minutes, we're going to take some time to answer this question. Does the New Testament show us that Jesus is actually God in the flesh? Tons of passages to choose from, but we're going to look at one right now, a well known passage in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. And we have this on your handout. John opens his Gospel with these words In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. A fantastic passage. Every line of this passage is saturated with the deity of Christ. Let's look at at each verse. And and just some some background very quickly. John had two audiences in mind when he wrote this. He had a Jewish audience and he had a Greek audience. I'm going to put the Greek audience to the side uh, for the moment. Uh, let's focus on his intention in communicating to the Jewish audience. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What does this sound like? In the beginning was the Word. Where have we heard that before? That sounds just like Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. Certainly, this is what John had on his mind. What Genesis 1.1 tells us, is that before there was anything, before there was space, time, matter, energy, God was. This is exactly the same thing here. Before anything at all came into being, the word was always there. As the beginning approached, the word had been there from eternity past. Look at verse two. He was in the beginning. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's let's look at the second clause of verse one. Sorry. And the word was with God, okay? We'll see progressively that John gives us a little bit more insight into who this word is. So what do we know first? That this word is eternal, okay? Now we see something about his relationship with God, that the word is with God. Now, I need to ask you to keep your, your eyes open for this next part because it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it may get you, but I think that it's very necessary. John, there are four Greek words that John could have used to uh, for the word with to say that Jesus the Word was with God. Okay, the the normal common uh, word for with is the word um, meta. Okay, the same. I'm with you guys right now. I'm meta with you all. The next he doesn't use that word. The next word that John could have used was the word para. If I were to be uh, walking with my wife in the park, holding her hand. I would be with everyone else, but wouldn't I be with my wife in a, in a more unique way? Okay? That's not the word that John uses. The next word that he could have used was the word sin or soon, where we get uh, synchronized swimmers. You know, the swimmers that are, all their motion is together. And so they're not only with each other, they're not only connected to each other, but they're with each other in purpose as well. Also not the word that John uses. The last word that John could have used is the word pros. The word pros comes from the Greek word prosopon, which means face. This is the word that John uses. What John is telling us is that this eternal word was eternally face to face with God. No one else, no created being could be said to be pros, the father. Yet this is exactly what John tells us of the son, the eternal word was in the highest intimate relationship with God himself. So we see in the second clause the distinction between, right? There are two persons, the distinction between the word and the distinction between God. But then John simply cannot help himself in this last clause. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. They are one in essence, the word with the father. Just an incredible, an incredible opening passage to John's gospel. Verse two tells us that he was in the beginning with God. And this is simply reemphasizing that the word had always been there with God, the father eternally. Verse three, all things were made through him and without him, not anything was not anything made that was made. Now you see you have this little kind of diagram on your on your notes. Let me let me explain that a little bit. So Saturday morning knock on the door. Who's at the door? Jehovah's Witnesses. Do we enjoy talking to them? They're okay. So we know that they're going to twist the scripture and it's like do I even feel like getting into all that and it's just going to be an exhausting exercise and we know that they're going to come to john 1 1 and say that the word was a god and a way out of that is to ask them because they'll say in the greek it says the word was a god and you could ask them do you speak greek They'll typically say no you say well neither do i so let's let's move that along and talk about something else you can see as we looked at john 1 1 we're not relying on that last phrase and the word was god or a god to show the divine nature of the word he eternally existed, and he's in the highest intimate relationship with the Father. But verse 3 provides an opportunity uh, to do something fun. And, and every time I've done this with a Jehovah's Witness, they don't have an answer for this. They tell me they will come back, and they lie to me. They do not come back. So what, what do we have here? This is, this is what I like to call a back-of-the-napkin sketch. I don't know why it's called that, because writing on a napkin is actually quite, quite challenging. Maybe pull out a piece of paper. So all things were made through him, and without him not, was not anything made that was made. So our diagram, we can draw a box. At the top of the diagram, we have everything that exists. This is all of reality, okay? Then underneath it, we've got two categories. We have everything that was made, and we have everything that was not made. Things that were made, and things that were not made. You ask them, where... Everything that was made, the creation, dogs, mountains, where does that go? And they'll say, well, that, that goes in the in the left box, everything, things that were made. Okay, we're good so far. Where does Jesus go? And they, they really struggle to answer this because they don't want to put him into the box where it says things were not made because Jehovah's Witnesses think that Jesus was a creation, was Jehovah's first creation. But then they know that it says that the Word made everything, that not anything that came into being was done apart from the Word. So now they're in this logical challenge that, okay, if Jesus made everything and Jesus was made, that means he would have had to exist before he existed to then bring himself into existence. And then what what are we talking about? This is is nonsense at this point. The only logical category that Jesus can be placed into – is right alongside God in the things that were not made, and we're not trying to. We're not trying to get our our uh, our opponents or the people we're we're witnessing to in a, in a logical trap. We're just trying to show them what the Scripture clearly teaches, and in their version of the Bible, their verse reads exactly like ours reads, and so we can clearly show them all things were made through this eternal Word in divine fellowship with the Father, and nothing was made apart from Him. Jesus cannot be. A created being, but must himself be God, eternal. At the, uh, I don't have this in your notes, but if you if you have your Bible, we can turn to uh, John chapter one, and I'll I'll close us here. John chapter one, and John one one to one eighteen is what's called the prologue to the Gospel of John. It's John's introduction to his gospel. We learn further about this word, that he is Jesus that became flesh, tabernacled amongst his people, Emmanuel, God with us, with his people. Look at verse 18, the end of the prologue to John's gospel. It says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He has revealed him. So here, referring to the eternal word, no one has ever seen God a reference to the Father, but the Word, who is the only God at the Father's side, also called God. His purpose is to come and reveal the Father to us. This is incredible. This is why uh, Colossians tells us that he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus tells his disciples in John 14, if you have seen me, you've seen what? You've seen the father. Jesus is the revelation of God to the world. I'm going to end right there. Uh, Next week, we're going to look at uh, the person of the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit also God? Or is he just some force that exists out there? This morning, we looked at uh, distinct persons are called God. God. And so far we've got that at least Jesus himself is God eternal. Thank you guys so much.